Oh, yes, I can. That, that's our title for the day. Now, it kind of sounds like it might be a, oh, great, this is going to be a message about how I can make it happen, I can do it, and it's going to be great, and, and I'll achieve that goal. That's not what it's about. In case you go, oh, man, that's, I was looking for that. That's all good stuff. But what I want to talk about is just thinking about, I mentioned it last week, how there's Bible verses that we can actually claim, but there are people who are very scholarly who say, you can't claim those verses. You can't say that. That wasn't for you. That's for this person. That's for these people. That's in that situation. But I want to say in most cases, yes, we can. There, there are definitely, it's, it's definitely wise to pause when we read something in Scripture or we study it or we look at it or as you hear it preached, to pause and say, hold, is that something I can apply to my life? Are there principles in this that I can apply? Or is this very person-specific? There are some things that are very person-specific. For instance, one day Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And so they made some stabs at it, and then finally Peter, anointed by God, said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, and I say to you that you shall be called Peter. Now that was very specific. I mean, if I quoted that verse today, I wouldn't want us all to think, I guess we all have to change our name to Peter because Jesus said, and I say to you, you shall be called Peter. That's very person-specific, very, very focused, and so I don't think it'd be good Bible for us to all change our names to Peter. But also, remember last week we looked at that woman that the Pharisees brought before Jesus to trap him and said she was caught in adultery? And you, if you remember the story, they said, that, oh, Moses says we should stone her. And Jesus said, okay, let's get at it. You know, you that's without sin, cast the first stone. And then it said from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones. And then Jesus said, where are those to condemn you? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Now, when we read that, that's very person-specific. He spoke that to a very specific person in a very specific situation. But is there not things we can learn from that too? I mean, as we get caught up in sin or we're struggling with something and we feel the weight of condemnation and God, does God not whisper to us too, I don't condemn you. Now, now let's not forget, I'm, I'm telling you, the world loves Jesus if they don't quote everything he says. I mean, lost people, the, the culture love Jesus as long as we don't quote it all. Because they love that, neither do I condemn you. In other words, you live however you want, do whatever you want, and it's all okay. But they forgot there's, there's more to that. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Can we not apply that to our lives? Yes, we can. God says, I don't condemn you. But he would speak our name and say, but go leave your life of sin. Why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus is a giver of life. Jesus said, one of the purposes I came is that you might have life and have it abundantly, have it overflowing, have it to the fullest measure. Is there anyone here who does not want that? Is there anybody who said, that sounds awful, to have abundant life, life to the fullest measure? Another translation says, Jesus said, I have come that you might enjoy a rich and satisfying life. Isn't that what everybody's looking for? Jesus said, I'm the giver of that. He's the creator of life, so he gives that. And the reason he's always telling me and you and, and everyone to get rid of sin is because, now you may have never heard this verse before, but some of you have, so those of you who have heard it can help out. By the way, if you've never heard this before, that's fine. We're all learning and growing. Uh, the scripture says that sin produces what? Death. So let's think about this as thinking people. If Jesus is the giver of life, and he wants you to enjoy life, 
then he's going to steer you away from sin because sin always produces death. Now, now what I mean by that is you, you don't sin, just fall over dead. But if you've ever got tangled up in sin, you know this, and probably every one of us here has at some, some point in our life have. If you've ever gotten tangled up in sin, it wasn't like you fell over dead, but did you notice that, that, that pretty soon that sin had a hold of you? You weren't controlling the sin, the sin was controlling you. And then pretty soon death begins to eke its way into your family and into your relationships and into your emotions and into your spiritual life and into everything. Pretty soon, sin has a way, it kind of, you know, sticks its foot in the door and then it gets in and then it starts producing death or destruction or a mess in your life. If you've ever been caught up in that, you know what I'm saying. And so God wants us to have life. He wants us to enjoy life. Now, I want to say this. The Bible clearly says this is how we would say it. Sin can be a whole lot of fun for a little bit, for a little while. But I've often told this to people. God's more concerned about you having an awesome life than some fun, sinful weekend. You know what I mean? Or some fun, sinful, you know, summer or something. God, God wants you to enjoy a fun, joy-filled, holy, happy life. So he's concerned about your life. So don't get tangled up in sin because it will produce death in whatever area of life You've let that sneak in the door. So we can't apply the things from Scripture. And, and we're going to look at a verse today that the, the people that I read often, by the way, you all know this, whatever field you're in, there's writings for it. You know, if you're a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, a, a farmer, a plumber, whatever, there's publications that deal with your, your industry. And so you may not know this, but I read stuff all the time about this verse we're going to look at where people say, you can't claim that, you can't say that. And let's remember our motto today, oh yes I can. Because what happens is, to grow in God, you see that person leaping across there? That's not me either, that was from one of our vacation photos. Um, what that person's doing is strategic. There's, I'm going to teach you something to help you grow in your walk with God, help you grow in life in general. Anytime the word of God comes out, it has truth and it has power in it. Jesus said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. They're not just words, there's more to it than that. And so anytime we get knowledge and information and understanding, that's really important because we have to start there. But we have to build a bridge. We have to build a bridge to application, a bridge of application, because information and knowledge is all wonderful, but if we don't apply it, it doesn't transform us. You know, uh, information without application never creates transformation. So we want change in our lives. And that's true of anything. It doesn't even have to be spiritual things. It's the same with the sport, with uh, learning a, a trade or whatever. You have to get the information, then you've got to build a bridge over to application and put it into practice, and then things begin to change in your life. So this person just you know, skip the bridge and they're just leaping over. I don't care how you get to the, to the application side. We all got to get to the application side. It's very, very important if we're going to grow in anything. So before we look at this verse I want to share with you, I want to remind you that there's other verses in the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, if we read the first part of that, it would tell us that all the things, one of the things we're going to read about today, they are examples for us. What do we do? We learn by examples. And it says we're supposed to look at these things that happened in the Old Testament, that happened to people, real events, and we're to glean information from them. And oftentimes they're to be used as a warning to warn us not to do that because it's not going to work out well. 
Now, oftentimes, there are also things we look at and say, ooh, that's a good way to do things, because that works out well if you do it that way. So there are examples for us to learn from, and you can read about that in the first half of 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. So we're going to look at this verse that I often read. You can't say that, but I say, oh, yes, we can. And we're going to draw strength, hope, and we're going to believe it. We're going to put it into practice in our lives. And I promise you this. I don't make a lot of promises, but I promise you, if you'll pay attention to what I'm saying today, and you put it into practice, your life will be better. You will grow, because that's the power of the Word of God. So, it's in Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, God's speaking here, and he says, They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. What happened is, bad stuff is getting ready to happen to the Israelites bad things are getting ready to happen to the Jewish people. And Jeremiah is prophesying the truth. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. Beware. Watch out. And other prophets, which weren't real ones, were saying, ah, Jeremiah. He's always got something negative to say. He's such a downer. But let me prophesy to you. Everything's going to be wonderful, and it's all going to be great. And Just listen to me. And God said, oh, time out. Don't listen to them. I did not call them. They are not prophesying in my name. They're not saying the things that I am saying. And then it says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. They're going to go into captivity for 70 years. That's the bad news. Jeremiah is prophesying the truth. And then here's the verse that often is said, you can't say that. You can't believe for that. You can't hope for that. I want to tell you, you can. Here it is. It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to what? Prosper you. Other translations say plans to bless you. I have plans to prosper you. I have plans to bless you. And not to harm you or not to curse you. I have plans to give you hope and a future. Now they say, well, you can't say that because that was written to the Israelites as they were getting taken away into Babylonian captivity. This has nothing to do with you, but I say, yes, it does because it reveals the heart, the nature, the purpose of God. And so, in fact, that verse used to be planted, it was beautifully painted or somehow put up on our wall when you walked in where that TV is now. It was up many years ago. That verse was right there on the wall. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper and not to harm you to give you hope and a future. Most of the time we go through something in life that we need a word of encouragement on. And we can sit there and go, you know what? I'm never going to make it. I'm going to get stuck here forever. And I want you to hear Jeremiah 29, 11, every time you feel that way. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans to prosper you and bless you, not to harm you, not to curse you, to give you hope and a future. And then there's some more good words after that. It says, then you will call upon me, and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. So good news. We got good news here, and we can, we can apply it. Now, this wasn't specifically written to us. We're not being whisked away into some kind of detention camp or, or being detained, uh, but there's parallels here that we can learn. And we also can see the heart of God. Now, I want to give you some backstory here. It's also found in the scripture about this Babylonian captivity, so you'll know what caused the problem. Because it's a fair question to ask, well, why is this happening to those people? 
I mean, isn't God their God? Isn't God protecting them? Isn't God watching out over them? Why is this happening to them? Why are they being taken away into captivity for 70 years? Well, let's read about that. 2 Chronicles 36, 14 through 16. Likewise, all the leaders, did you catch that phrase? All the leaders, not one or two, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more what? Unfaithful. They became more and more unfaithful. So you get the idea, they're growing in unfaithfulness. Now, what they're, they're not having a bad day, a bad week, a bad year. They're developing a lifestyle of unfaithfulness that's permeating a large portion of the people, the leadership and the people. They followed all the pagan practices, all the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, desecrating the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated or set aside as holy in Jerusalem. Now, if you know much about God's people, the Jewish people, they were not to be involved in any pagan practice at all. Pagan and unbelieving, un, un, ungodly people. And here it says, they've put into practice all the practices of the pagan nations that are around them, and they've desecrated, defiled the temple, which had been set aside, consecrated as holy to the Lord in Jerusalem. Let's look at the heart of God. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent prophets to warn them for he had what? Compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. I want us to look at the heart of God here. Those who knew God best in the Old Testament, you often hear me say, because the, the culture, the world... The devil, he's a liar, remember? The Bible says the truth isn't in him. Lying is his native tongue. He's a liar from the beginning. He continues to lie. He always lies. And so he tells the world out there, God's hateful, God's angry, God's mean, God's, God's, you know, he's on the verge of, you know, having a breakdown and getting you. And so he's, he's really testy and he's looking for some, he's looking just for an excuse to, you know, strike you with a bolt of lightning. But those who knew God best, because people who say that don't know God. They don't know God. The people who knew God best, even in the Old Testament, did God have some incredible judgment that fell upon people in the Old Testament? You better believe he did. But when you see those who knew God best, he said, let me tell you about God. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's extravagant in his love. And he hates to send calamity or judgment. That's the heart of God. That's the path of God. And what happens, what people don't see, is just like this. God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger after messenger. They continued to grow in their unfaithfulness and turn from God, and they created a problem for themselves. And what happens is that God sometimes, if you really read the whole context in the Old Testament, sometimes deals with a people group for generations as they keep getting more sinful, more sinful, more sinful, more sinful. So we all got this, right? wasn't a bad day they had. wasn't a bad moment. wasn't a bad week or a year. It was a bad lifestyle. They were just going on year after year, decade after decade, becoming more unfaithful to God. And so then it says that God's anger, there was a point where God's anger, that nothing could be done about it, that his anger could not be restrained. Now, again, I know it's kind of teachy, but I want you to learn some of these things about God because it'll serve you really well. Not only is God loving and compassionate and kind and merciful and gracious, 
and his number one tools to get you to repent. Now, I want to define repent quickly. It, it means to have a change of mind. You know, it doesn't mean a preacher screaming at you repent. It means that you've examined some information. It literally means this, to think differently after. You've examined some information, and now you think differently. That's what repentance is. And that thinking differently causes you to behave differently. So you've repented. You've, you've changed the way you thought. And so what happens is God has dealt with people over and over and over and over, sometimes for generations, and they don't repent. And his number one tools for repent, getting people to repent, guess what? Is not judgment. It's not punishment. If you read the scripture, his number one tool for repentance, to get you to repent, is goodness and kindness. Isn't that awesome? What a God we serve. Don't let anybody lie to you. This is what the Bible says. For it is the goodness and kindness of God that is to lead you to repentance. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to pause, and hopefully everybody will do it today, and say, wow, God's so good to me. He's so kind to me. And if you're not serving God, and you don't know him as your Savior, you're supposed to pause and say, wow, I haven't been good to God, but he's been good to me. I need to serve him. I need to love him. I need to go after him. But it says, if you don't, then you're storing up wrath for yourself against the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, I want to explain to you something about God's anger. He's totally capable of being angry. Don't get me wrong. But he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. The reason he gets angry and the reason he sends judgment is because there's something else about him. He's holy, and he's righteous, and he loves justice. The scripture says, I, the Lord, love justice. Now, our culture is really into justice, 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 and I'm really into that too. I'm glad. We should have justice. But I think it's interesting that when we see people treated wrongly, and there's not judgment and justice that comes, we get angry. We'll have marches. We'll, we'll get upset, and I get that. But when God deals with somebody for generations and gets angry and delivers justice and judgment, we go, he's so mean. He's so wrathful. He's so awful. He's so horrible. No, because he is holy and righteous and just, there will be a point, and I don't know where that line is because he's slow to anger, I don't know where that line is where he says, I can no longer allow this to continue any longer or I can no longer call myself just. I can no longer cause, allow this wickedness to continue and me say, I, the Lord, love justice. I'm going to have to say I don't love justice, that I just, I love sin. I love abuse. I love wrongdoing. And so he comes to a point where he says, we've crossed that line now. And what does it say? It says, let me see if I can find that. It says, God, the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. But even when God gives his anger, we see this in Jeremiah, he's already got you a plan to bail you out. How good is that? How good is that? <laughs> he, says, he says, judgment's going to come, but I want to bail you out. See, there's this principle, a spiritual principle, and it's a natural principle too. It's called sowing and reaping. And we understand in the natural. We got some farmers in the room. When a farmer goes out, sows corn, he is absolutely certain he's going to get corn. He or she doesn't look out at the field and say, I'm not sure what's going to come up. No, they know what they sowed. They know what they're going to reap. And the Bible says, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. 
And so in our lives, we have things to sow. If you had a big warehouse full of all different kinds of things, you could sow and create a, a peach or an apple orchard. You could, you could have sweet corn and tomatoes and potatoes and all your favorite fruits and vegetables. Or you had a wall of seed where you could sow briars and thistles and poison ivy and all of that. I would hope you would say, I'm going to sow the good stuff because I want a good harvest. And so if you're sowing stuff in your life, that would be akin to poison ivy and bristles and briars. Stop it because there's a harvest coming and we want a harvest that's good. We want a good harvest, so we want to sow good things. So as these people were sowing unfaithfulness and pagan practices over and over and over, there come a place where there had to be a harvest for them, but God still wants to rescue them and bail them out. So we learned from 1 Corinthians 10 that these are examples for us, so let's see what we can learn from these examples. Here's some truths to learn. Leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. Again, our culture's not into that. Our culture does not want to call things sin. You know, but I've noticed this because we're, we're interesting people. Don't call what I'm doing sin. Just celebrate and accept it. But how dare you sin against me? If you do something against me, let's call it sin, let's deal with it, and <laughs> let's have justice. Let justice roll. But the culture wants to say, I don't know if anything I'm doing is sin. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out if it's sin. You can read your Bible, and you can learn what, what is sin. Leave your life of sin. A famous motivational speaker I quote every now and then, Zig Ziglar, he went on to be with the Lord. He loved Jesus. He spoke all over the world, was uh, uh, spoken secular or Christian events as well. I really like what he said. He said, people come to him all the time and say, I just don't understand the Bible. And I loved his line. He said, I don't think it's what they don't understand that bothers them. I think it's what they do understand. And so as we begin to understand what God calls sin, then we should call that sin. It is wrong for us to call evil good and good evil. And so leave your life of sin. Now we all get the understanding that every one of us make mistakes, we do things wrong, we sin. But we don't ever want to just be comfortable with that. If, if that happens, we, our heart needs to be quick to repent and say, you know, God, that's not who I am, that's not what I'm about. You know, help me, Holy Spirit, I don't want to leave a, live a lifestyle of that. So leave your life of sin. Second thing is don't scoff and dismiss God's word. God's word came to these people over and over and over and over, and they just dismissed it. Know that God's heart is to deliver you. God wants to deliver you. What are you caught up in today? God wants to deliver you. That's good news. God wants to say to you, I don't condemn you. I'm not beating you up. Now, now go leave your life of sin. I love John 3.16 and 17. 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. So God's always into saving and rescuing. So, God has a plan for you. Number four, we've heard that all of our lives. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He really does. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, what's the plan? Here's the plan. God wants to prosper you, not harm you. Some translations say bless and not curse you. Either one's great. The only thing that's somewhat a problem with prosper is sometimes immediately people only think of money. Uh, but we all know that there's a whole lot more prosperity and blessing than money. That God wants to prosper you, not harm you. God wants you to have hope and a future. If you're here today without hope, you know how horrible it is to be in a place without hope. It's it's awful to feel hopeless. 
God wants you to have hope. And God wants you to know you have a future. God wants you to know there's, there's good days ahead. There's good things up the road. He wants you to have hope and a future. In fact, he even says one time, I think as Paul prays, he says, I pray that the God of all hope, the God of all hope will fill you with joy and peace. Here's your part. As you trust in him, and you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing wrong calling upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me. I need some overflowing hope in my life. But how do we activate this in our lives? We got those truths, and you can write them down, take a picture of them. They'll be on Facebook later if you want to look them up and come to this screen. So how do we activate these in our lives? We activate it by believing and speaking and expecting God's promises to be true, that we're going to experience his promises, that we are going to experience them. Because I'll tell you, you'll wake up one day and you'll say, all is lost, life's horrible, I don't know, nothing's going to work. And when, you, when that comes across your mind, you stop that and you say, hold it, I'm going to believe what God says. God has a plan for my life. He wants to prosper me, not harm me. He wants to give me hope in a future. And you begin to speak that. Now you say, but I don't feel like speaking that. Wouldn't that be hypocritical? It's never hypocritical to speak what God's word says. It's never wrong to do what's right. It's not wrong to trust God and speak it and proclaim it in your life. I don't feel like it. It doesn't matter. I will tell you a little, this is probably a spiritual and natural truth. Your feelings will often follow your words and your actions of faith. Uh, you, you, you can... And I'm not telling us to be phony. I'm not telling us not to be genuine. But I do want to say this. You could wake up some morning and say, I just feel awful today. And, and I get it if you're truly sick. But if it's just kind of an emotional thing, you can get up and say, you know what? This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And you begin to speak the word of God. You begin to hold your head up high. You begin to, to start confessing the blessings of God over your life. And I'm telling you, in a few minutes, you will feel totally different. Faith activates feelings. But we let our feelings often lead our lives. And, and I'm a human being like you are, so I get it. It's very easy to just cave to feelings, but I want to encourage you. Don't cave to feelings. You know, if you're going to cave to something, cave to faith. Because I know this about feelings, too. They're fickle. They're fickle. I've shared this with you before. That's probably one bad thing about having me forever here is I don't have new stories. But I was watching this, this show called The Amazing Race. And if you've ever seen it, they're little teams that they do these things. And so they run up to this thing, and this, this guy and gal are dating each other. And uh, you're the third team to arrive or whatever. And he looks over, and he tells her and the camera and the audience how awesome she is, how amazing she is. He loves her with an undying love, and he's gushing all over her. The very next week, they're doing a task, and she's barking at him to try to get him to do it because you've got to get this stuff done. And he falls to his knees in this mud, and he says, I hate you so much. And I thought, there we did. There was the, the human experience. We went from, she's the most beautiful thing in the world, to I hate you so much. So your feelings are fickle. They'll change. It depends upon what's going on. But faith is steadfast. So grab a hold of faith. Now, it's by Faith and belief, believing that what God said is true and expecting his promises to come to pass. I just dare you to be expected. Dare you to be. You, you expecting something? You believe in something for, for something? Just go to your mailbox. Say, maybe it's in here. You know, maybe you see somebody on the street. Maybe they're going to 
Maybe they're by connection. I don't know. You just, you just have a spirit of expectancy about you. Now, I want to deal with something for just a moment before we close. So don't, I hate to say the word close because I know some people's mind just went, oh, we're done. No, come back, come back, come back for just a moment. This is a problem with a lot of people. I had this problem, you may have it, and this right here, uh, my joke is, could be worth your price of admission. So here, here we go. It's, we got to deal with this sense of foreboding. You can't believe God for his promises if you have this sense of foreboding about you. So I, I want to look at this. What is foreboding? Fearful apprehension. Foreboding is a feeling that something bad will happen. Now, I'm going to be real. Do bad things happen? Sure they do. Do we live in a broken world? Absolutely. Has everybody in this room had something bad happen to them? Sure they have. Okay. But that's different than having this foreboding sense that something bad is going to happen. Back many years ago, I remember I was thinking, wow, you know, God's been so good to me, and life is so good, and he's so good, and I'm so filled with blessing and joy, and I had this thought, you can't continue to live that way. Something bad has to happen. I thought, oh, there's a sense of foreboding. You feel the weight of that, like, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm waiting for that other shoe to drop. Something bad has to happen. But I stopped and I went, where's that in the Bible? Where's that in the Bible that something bad has to happen? Where's that in the Bible that, well, things have been going too good for you. You've had four blessings. You now will get two trials. Okay, where's that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. So I went and said, hey, I'm not going to have a sense of foreboding. So any time that tries to hit me, I say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to embrace foreboding. I'm not going to embrace a feeling that something bad will happen. My buddy Jeff Bias that was here last week, he came up to afterwards, I was chatting for a little bit, and he said, man, he said, everything's so good in my life. He said, I have to stay on my knees because I just, you know, I just don't know he said exactly like this, but I feel like something bad will come if I don't. I said, brother, I, I, I've had to deal with that. There's a sense of, things can't be this good. I want to say, yes, it can. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Yes, but I've had trouble. Well, we've all had trouble. I get that, but don't have a sense of foreboding. Do you get the difference between that? There's a sense of foreboding. And here's a beautiful verse in Proverbs 15. It's out of the Amplified Bible Classic Edition because the Amplified Bible will take words and kind of expand it so you can get a little more depth to it. It says, all the days of the desponding or despondent people, all the days of the desponding, which means becoming dejected or losing confidence, all the days of the desponding and afflicted are made evil. They're made bad. They're not good. And they're made bad by anxious thoughts and forebodings. I forget the guy just came across my mind that I quoted one time back a ways, he said uh, something to the effect, I've had many, many awful things in my life. And then he said, most of which never came true. But he was saying, because he thought them, it could ruin a whole day. You can ruin a whole day, a whole week, a whole month, a whole year, a whole life with foreboding, with anxious thoughts, and believing that something bad is about to happen. But, here's a way to live, but he who has a glad heart has a continual feast, has a continual celebration. So which do you want? You want all your days to be evil? Or do you want them to be a feast? 
Well, have a glad heart. And I like what it says, because it's not living pie in the sky. It's, it has a glad heart, a continual, they have a continual feast, regardless of circumstances. Regardless of circumstances. You ever meet just people who are negative about anything? I remember when the lottery first happened in, in Indiana. Somebody said, Lord, I'd hate to win that thing. Think of all the taxes you'd have to pay. Well, first of all, I thought that's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. If you want a million dollars and you had to pay 50% taxes in it, you're, I don't know if, I'm not a math genius, but I think you're up 500000 okay? People drive by a house and they see a big old house. Well, I wouldn't want to have that. I'd hate to clean that thing. Okay, let me explain something to you. If you own that house, you don't have to clean it, okay? you got enough money to hire somebody to clean it, okay? So just how, it's interesting how we can just immediately be negative. Well, Lord, I wouldn't want to own that Ferrari, think what the insurance on that would be. Again, I want to remind you, if you can truly afford a Ferrari, you can afford the insurance for it. It's just interesting how people, we, we can automatically go to something negative. That's foreboding. Don't do that. So I want to rescue you from foreboding, and I want you to have a glad heart. Because if you have a glad heart, your life's going to be a continual feast. You're going to be happy. Job says this, and I thought, man, that describes me, and I hope it describes you. It basically says this. God is keeping these people so happy and satisfied, they don't even think about, you know, the problems around them. They don't even think about the end of their life. They're not worrying about all that. You know, there's people who have been worrying since 12 years old. Oh, I'm going to die one day. Well, they're 115 now, but they've been worrying for, you know, over 100 years about that. Just, I'm going to let you know, see, you're going to die one day. Aren't you glad you came to hear that? But you're not dead yet. So enjoy life today. Enjoy life today. I got other good news for you. Do you love Jesus? Then I'm going to tell you something. You're never really going to die. You're never really going to die. The day you take your last breath here, you're going to experience life like you've never experienced before. So let's, let's just... Jesus said, I came that you might enjoy a rich and satisfying life. And so let's enjoy it today and tomorrow and as we step into his presence. Let's not live in fear. John, the great disciple, told us that fear has to do with torment or punishment. Fear is always thinking about torment, punishment, and it eats you up and it gives you ulcers and it stirs you up. But he says, perfect love casts out fear. Guess who has perfect love? Jesus. You got him in your life? He casts out fear. And you can enjoy a rich and satisfying life. Let's pray together.